I did a program called Semester at Sea, where you go around the world, you circumvent the globe. I think we stopped in 12 different countries along the way. And one of those stops was in Tanzania. I went to Tanzania and Kenya. As an African-American, we have an appreciation for African art. And I got the idea, well, what about if I come back, do like an art expo? And so I flew back to Kenya and with like three suitcases, I think I had like $300 or something like that. And I basically bought massive amounts of art to fill my, I think it was like two suitcases full. I actually ended up having like a little art expo with my mom's friends and I made flyers and everything. And I turned my $300 into like $1,200. From SME Ventures, it's the Search Fund Podcast, a show about hungry entrepreneurs who, instead of starting a business, decide to buy one. These are their stories of success, failure, and the lessons they've learned. Our guest on the show today, Mia Jackson, has always had an entrepreneurial spirit. From running an African art exhibit as an undergrad to simultaneously launching both her consultancy practice and a beauty startup, Mia has never been one to shy away from the entrepreneurial grind. After falling in love with the search fund model during her MBA program, the idea would eventually become a no-brainer for her when it came time to move on to the next entrepreneurial pursuit, which culminated in her acquisition of Vital Care Industries. Now, unlike most searchers, Mia entered the world of search with a ton of corporate and startup operating experience, both of which have served her incredibly well. She is one year into her acquisition and has been given the unique challenge of taking the helm of a healthcare business amidst a global pandemic that has thrown a real wrench in her supply chain. In this episode, we'll learn what fuels Mia's entrepreneurial drive and how she made it happen. Mia, thank you so much for joining. I, I'm excited to talk to you. You acquired about a year ago and you've had an exciting journey so far. Uh, so I really appreciate you joining the podcast. No, oh, thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Excited to share my story. Um, it took me a little while to find a company and now I can't believe it's already been a year. So <laughs> happy to share my story. Good. Mia, can we start from the beginning? Where did you grow up? Oh, the way, way beginning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Born and raised in Southern California. So grew up in Inglewood and you know, went to Catholic school all my life. And then uh, the first time I went to public school was at UCLA <laughs> and did chemical engineering at UCLA, did kind of a biomedical option. So I went to school thinking I wanted to be a doctor and kind of decided didn't want to do that, but actually really enjoyed the coursework. So I kind of stuck with it. And so I have a chemical engineering degree with a biomedical option. What were you like as a kid? Bossy, <laughs> <laughs> pretty independent. Yeah, I, I have a vivid memories of like being in third grade and like negotiating with my mom that I didn't want to go to chiropractice anymore because I couldn't sing and I could like focus on my schoolwork. So I also was a, a nerd. So, and she agreed and that kind of started the whole domino effect of me being able to advocate for myself and negotiate different things in life. So very independent child. Were your parents, sounds like they really valued education. Yes. Yeah. My parents really valued education. 
Both my sister and I went to Catholic school from kindergarten on. They really, both of me and my sister went to college. And it's something that they instilled in us very early. For me, I am a natural learner. I love to learn. And so school always came naturally to me and kind of coupled with that independence. Like I didn't give my show parents my report card or anything like that, ironically. I was just self-managed. So if I got a bad grade, they knew because I was like already so bad on myself. So they had a hands-on, hand-off approach whenever they needed to. But yeah, I was pretty self-managed and I really enjoyed school. So you say you're a natural learner, you're a nerd. (laughs) Where did that come from? Were your parents also nerds? How did that happen? Yeah, my mom, she's a nurse. And so I think maybe the inclination for kind of the healthcare medical field came from there. But my dad was, you know, good with his hands and he didn't really enjoy school when he went to school. So I don't know where it came from. I've just always been curious. I mean, I was the the kid that was watching Natural Geographic, learning about random facts about animals at a small age, talking about that in conversation. I'm a, I'm the youngest. And so I think as a result, I interacted a lot more with older adults or older kids, maybe the desire to kind of want to keep up, I guess, attributed to me, my, my curiosity to learn about other things. But yeah, I've always kind of been this way. I've always been like the banker of my family. My sister is seven years older than me, but I used to keep the money that my, you know, if my mom sent me to the store and then I would just accumulate the money <laughs> off the change and like loan it out to my siblings and stuff like that. So <laughs> it just came in Nate really wired Did you charge interest? I did. I did. At least I tried. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard when she's seven years older than you. She has a little bit more more influence. (laughs) Mm. UCLA for chemical engineering. How did you choose that? So I had a really influential uh, high school science teacher, Mr. Salehi, basically created an honors program for science for me which allowed me to be valedictorian of my class. And it was through his guidance. Like I said, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but I wanted to have some versatility. And we kind of just had a strategy session about what are the different disciplines and talked about engineering and what is the most flexibility and what gives me the option to go to medical school and chemical engineering with the biomedical option came into play. And so I specifically looked at schools with chemical engineering with the the biomedical option or bioengineering focus. I didn't grow up with engineers. Parents weren't engineers or anything like that. I barely knew lawyers and doctors. So it wasn't like I had a lot of exposure to various different people with these science degrees or anything like that. It was really the exposure and really the collaboration with my science teacher. And I still didn't know what I was getting myself into, but hey, I was good at science and I was good at math and we tried it out. So you finished UCLA. You actually don't go straight to medical school. Was it something you were planning further down the line or did you change your mind? I changed my mind probably about a year or two in. I decided that I didn't want to go to medical school. I explored doing research, but I think at that time I was doing lab work and I didn't really enjoy that very well. But I actually, throughout most of college, I actually worked, whether it be volunteering or or working in the hospital. So I really enjoyed it. It's just that I wasn't, the weight of having someone dying was really weighted on me and I didn't want to have like someone's life in my hands. I can be very sensitive in times. So 
even though I'm a more of a science person, but you know, I, I didn't want to have that. That was really hard for me. So I looked to maybe apply it in a different other areas. So I actually decided out of school to do something totally different. I worked for a building materials manufacturer, Owens Corning. They make the the pink building insulation. So I did something totally different, but the engineering background, the problem solving skills, the ability to distill really complex, challenging issues, problems down to something simple are all the the skills that I learned in in undergrad. You did a couple of years at Owens Corning and a couple of years at Zepp, both chemicals manufacturing companies, correct? Yep. What were you doing? Were you in the lab? What was your day-to-day like? And this is not intentional at all. It's kind of fell into place. I've always kind of, I've been a planner, but never really planned out career is kind of it's weird when I think about it, but I got certain opportunities. And so um, going out of undergrad, I joined an operational development program with Owens Corning. And I really did more operations and management type work. I was a shift supervisor for almost a year. And that was a very interesting experience being someone from California supervising individuals in the South. <laughs> um, and uh, I did that. I, I worked in the warehouse. I did a, a rotation in the warehouse, a rotation in maintenance. And then that's where I kind of developed my my love for continuous improvement. I got my Lean Six Sigma certification at that time, a green belt. And I was able to take that and, and really hone those skills at ZEP. Now, you would later become an entrepreneur. You'd start a couple companies and then obviously launch your search fund and acquire a company that you would then run. Did you see any hints during this early corporate years that might be what you would ultimately end up doing? Not actually during that time, but actually during college. So I did a program called Semester at Sea, where you go around the world, you circumvent the globe. I think we stopped in 12 different countries along the way. Pretty cool, unique experience. And one of those stops was in Tanzania. I went to Tanzania and Kenya during that stop. And as a African-American, we have an appreciation for African art. And I just got the something I wanted to take home a lot of stuff, maybe because I like to shop, but I, just a lot of things I want to take home for my family. <laughs> and I got the idea, well, what about if I come back and do like an art expo in California? And so after it was done, part of the program is that they have what they call exchange students. So the next port that you go to, the exchange student comes on before, like, let's say, I think we went from India to Tanzania. So the person that was, she was in Kenya, Gadwili, she came on the boat, she met us in India, and then she rode with us. So we got to interact with her and learn about her culture and things of that nature. And so we actually became good friends during that time. And so after it was over, so my dad was an airline mechanic supervisor. And so I had free flight benefits. And so I flew back to Kenya and with like three suitcases. And I I think I had like $300 or something like that. And I basically bought masses amounts of art to fill my, I think it was like two suitcases full. That was probably somewhat illegal because it's kind of importing, but a third of it broke. Like I had statues and everything. So I actually super glued some of those back together, but we ended up having like a little art expo with my mom's friends and I made flyers and everything. And I turned my $300 into like $1,200. 
And that was kind of my first, besides loaning money to my my siblings, kind of my first entrepreneurial venture. And I loved it. And it didn't really come back up until after after business school, it reemerged with my my startup. Before we get to that, you've spent the first four years of your career as an engineer and, and you decided to go to Northwestern to pursue a dual degree in business and engineering management. So you're holding on to that engineering world, but also stepping into the business management world. And the two worlds of engineering and business are often depicted as attracting and producing different kinds of people. But I've seen some of the world's best entrepreneurs come with that combination of an engineering background and business training. In your mind, where do those two worlds overlap and where do they diverge? And do you ever fight a battle within yourself between the engineer and and the business person? Yeah, good question. I think I'll answer the latter first. Not really, I don't think I have an internal battle. I think I've kind of always knew, even going into at school, that I wasn't going to be the engineer in the lab or I was going to do engineering. I always knew that I was going to go to business school. I didn't really understand what that meant, I don't think, but I kind of always knew that I wanted to own my own business. It was kind of these lofty goals that I didn't really know what they they really meant or how I was going to do it, but I kind of always knew that. I wasn't going to be crunching numbers and being in a lab. I enjoy data, as um, my employees know, but I knew that I wanted to find that intersection, right? Kind of like I mentioned before, I think the problem solving and being able to distill complex ideas down, which really has been helpful of conveying things that are happening in a business to be able to convey that to employees convey that to the board and those are different types of audiences. It also was very, very helpful in my consulting career. Additionally, I think the intersection is being able to utilize data to make decisions. That's essentially what engineering is. You can apply it in different ways, but how you apply it and you can take customer data, think about financials and figure out, hey, how I'm going to take this, how can I analyze it? These seven different ways can be really fancy and do these regressions and all that stuff. But how do I take this information and how do I make this company or or make this process or or whatever insert make this better? And I think that's one of the the great things that I've been able to learn is through engineering is being able to take that, but also think about it conceptually, not just in the numbers, right? And then you got to figure out the people piece, which engineering does not teach you, which real world teaches you. Mm. But if you have that foundation, you don't have to learn all the other things. I was going to ask you if if you find that your engineering background is limiting in any way in your in your role as a people manager or as an operator. And you mentioned that it doesn't teach you the people piece. Did you learn the people piece deliberately or sort of through trial and error? More like trial by fire. I think I learned the people piece as a 22, 23-year-old shift supervisor of 100 or 150 hourly workers in a fiberglass plant in south of Georgia. (laughs) So I think uh, that'll do it. A union facility. And I learned a lot from that experience, right? I learned a lot how being a female in business, being a female in manufacturing, the engineering side, the learning and like the manufacturing piece. I love making things and, and that process. That was very intriguing and attracted me to the company. My job, especially for that almost a year, was to manage the people. And so I saw all types of things and had to be able to manage and had to 
fire people or discipline people and they were part of a union. And so in a lot of cases, those things got overturned or they were able to come back and having to deal with that and manage through that, right? Um, that could be a really interesting dynamic when you discipline or fire someone and then they're back the next day or two days later. Mm. <laughs> Different things like that. I think I, I kind of learned or toughened up, so to speak, in my early years as a supervisor and just in the manufacturing space in general. I think it has helped me become a better leader now. In 2009, you start your dual degree at Northwestern MBA and Master of Science in Engineering Management. I assume it was during that two-year period that you discovered the search fund model. Is that correct? Actually, it isn't. Um, so I, I know in the search fund world, I feel like I'm ancient <laughs> because you know I went to business school so long ago and search funds weren't really a thing especially at, at, at Kellogg. I think if I went to Stanford or, or Harvard, they would probably, self-funded searchers would probably be more prevalent, but it just wasn't something we learned in the context. So I, I did, I went to a class that Stephen Rogers taught um, called Financial Entrepreneurial Finance, right? And it was basically search funds, but we never heard the word search fund, right? I didn't really, hmm. conceptually, I was like, hey, this is really cool but didn't really know what it was in a full context. It wasn't actually until after I graduated, a really good friend of mine, veteran in the search fund world, Michael Curry, he's like family. And he shared about what he was about to do when he was graduating from Booth. And it's like, you should do it. You have more operations experience than I do. And I was like, no, you know, I need more experience. And that was when I kind of first learned about it. It wasn't until what... Seven years later that I actually uh, took the plunge and and started down the path of doing my own search. But I had, you know, obviously stayed involved and heard about Mike's journey. And every, you know, year or two, I would he would connect me with different people. And eventually I said, this is, you know, I think I'm ready now. Um, I'm at the point where I definitely feel confident to do it. And I took the plunge in 2018. All right, let's talk about what happened in between. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you you went into consulting, pretty common thing for MBAs to do post-program. Forgive my ignorance, but I haven't heard of the Keystone Group before. Can you tell me how you chose them and, and why you decided to start with consulting? Yeah, so ironically, it's kind of a deja vu of undergrad again. So I did, I actually recruited for healthcare I worked for Baxter over the summer. Thought this was going to be my time again to to get back into healthcare. I think I had about four or five offers, and four of them, a majority of them, were from healthcare companies. And I decided to go with Keystone, um, which is not healthcare focused at all. It's ironic. I mean, everything happens for a reason. I'm a really strong believer of that. But one of the things I really was drawn to Keystone, couple things. One. I was able to use my manufacturing and operations background on day one, um, and I was going to be able to do that across a number of industries, including healthcare. Additionally, you know, Keystone is a boutique management consulting firm in Chicago, and uh, they also have offices in Atlanta and I believe a, a, another place as of now. I was able to also get turnaround experience working with them as well, and so that was attractive. But the main thing that was attractive is that they were working with middle market companies and they were working with 
CEOs and executives or second and third generation owners and founders, and they were helping them improve their business. And I thought that was so cool that majority of Americans work for small businesses or medium-sized businesses. They don't work for the IBMs of the world or the Googles of the world. And to be kind of a part of helping maintain and grow the local economies by growing and developing um, and lower middle market companies was pretty interesting to me. And those are the main drivers of why I decided to join Keystone. There seems to be some foreshadowing here. Were you conscious in, in your thinking that you wanted to play in that small and middle market space and that you wanted to be a business owner? Was this on your mind that whole time as a consultant? I don't think it framed it as middle market, but I framed it as being able to work with small enough companies where you're interacting with senior leadership and you're hearing these amazing stories of how these people started in their garage or had this really cool idea and now they have this huge company. So that was really attractive to me to be able to hear the stories of these entrepreneurs because that's what they were. And I knew that the work that I was doing, even when I was doing turnaround work, that I was going to be able to impact the, the people that there were there in the communities. Yet sometimes we, we are making recommendations to let go 10, 100 people, 20 people, 100 people, but that was to save the thousand, right? Those were hard decisions and to have to recommend and you try to find ways to not have to do that. But sometimes it was that main company that was the main driver of the con the local economy. The type of work that we did was you're getting in an airplane and then you're driving two hours to the, the site. So it's not like it's in the metro, it was middle America. You're 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 driving two and three hours in some cases to to go to these companies. And so they were the main driver. And so keeping those companies afloat was essential for those communities. And that's the kind of thing that communicated to me during the interview process and that really resonated. Then in 2014, after a few years with Keystone, you have your UCLA degree, you have your Kellogg MBA and master's in engineering management. You have your years of engineering experience and your years of consulting experience. And you decide to, in some ways, leave all that behind mm -hmm. and become one of those entrepreneurs to start a business that does what? Yes, me and my best friend from, from high school, we started a beauty services company. It was called Stunning on Standby and a totally original idea until we heard that Glam Squad existed. But <laughs> we basically had a similar concept of basically being able to have a beauty artist, whether that be a makeup artist, a nail technician or hairstylist come to someone's home and provide those services for them, whether it be for a gala or prom or just a special event. This is way before all of this existed. So it's kind of interesting to kind of see how the market is, has grown. And I had moved back to California at this time. And so we decided that this is what we wanted to do. And we built almost a business. We were basically ready to launch. We actually had hired some people and life happens in a lot of different ways and we weren't able to fully launch. I still think it's a great idea. I still think it there is still a market for it, especially where we were thinking, the niche market we were thinking about serving. It's not dead. Maybe one day we'll revive it. <laughs> but I still think it was a, a great idea. But it was also a great experience. We basically went from 
an idea sitting on, you know, having drinks on the balcony or on the, the rooftop of some restaurant in, in LA to months later having this full-fledged company that had this tech back office and I had gone to makeup school. There was just so many things that had happened um, and we had really taken this from nothing to something and it was a really cool experience. I always enjoy talking with searchers and, and other entrepreneurs about this moment of transition between from corporate life to the entrepreneurial life. And in the search world, we actually have quite a few startup refugees who have caught the bug of, of starting their own business, but decide they don't want to start from scratch again. Can you tell me about that moment? A lot of people listening right now are in their corporate jobs and are wondering when or how they're ever going to take that leap to to the entrepreneurial world. What went through your mind? How, how did you have the confidence and comfort to actually make the move? For me, I guess I had the space and opportunity to to do that. And I know that it can be hard when you're working a corporate job to create the space to imagine. And I had moved back to California and I hadn't got a new job yet. And so I had that time to kind of kick around different ideas and to to kind of figure out how I wanted to reset. And it was hearing the resistance, like I was trying to resist the idea of just like getting another job, right? And taking the time to really explore what I wanted to do. And that that was, you know, reading books like What Color Is Your Parachute and, and things of that nature. So I do encourage people, you may not be able to in your, you know, quit your job, but make space any way that you can to really give yourself an opportunity to explore different options. I'm a firm believer that you don't, it doesn't have to be one thing. And there's ways to explore those things while you're still working. The weekends and it makes it a little bit harder, but it's still a ways to explore. Even how Jasmine and I developed Stunning on Standby, she was still working full time. And I, in order to make money, I started consulting. And that's kind of how my consulting business came about. But I was still working at some point in time. In the very beginning, I wasn't, but I I still had to work and we still had to grow this business. So I actually was still working a good portion of the latter half of the, the startup. So that was just out of necessity. <laughs> so I, I know how hard it can be, but it's really, it's something's important creating the space for it. I know it sounds really tongue in cheek, but it's really important. Yeah, I get it. So that was a real hustle. You're trying to develop a consulting business, which just alone can be hard. And you're starting from scratch and you're trying to find clients and, and serve them and get referrals and generate income while starting a, um, a startup with a co-founder who was also working uh, somewhere else. And, and you were grinding that path for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Did anything about that scare you and make you think ever, gosh, maybe I should just go back to my engineering corporate life or my consulting corporate life. That was a lot easier. There were definitely times. I mean, when you're in between projects and you're working so much on this project that you didn't have time to find leads for the next project. So you kind of have a a little bit of a dip and you're still doing <laughs> the startup. And in my case, my founder, I lived in Southern California. She lived in Northern California. It made it really challenging. And so there was definitely times where you're like, is this really worth it? And how I saw consulting at that time was just enough to 
get us through because we did feel that our idea and our business would be uh, self-sustaining, that we wouldn't need outside capital besides our own. And that once we can, you know, get it through the first six months that it would be cash flow positive and we would be able to reinvest in the business. I do think that that was naive a little bit, but I still think that it was one of those businesses that is self-generating and you, you don't need a, you know outside capital for it. You're able to, at that point, maybe at a later point to scale, you may have needed outside capital. However, really initially the consulting was just to, to have money <laughs> so I could live and really build the business. But again, you know, eventually life happened and we decided that we weren't going to pursue the launching of the business. And I just focused in, in my focus gears and built my consulting practice. Right. So you continued that consulting for a couple of years post stunning on standby before launching your search fund. And at what point did the idea of a search fund resurface? So I had talked with, you know, I would see Mike at Thanksgiving. We would do Thanksgiving together every now and then, or he's really good about just reaching out and catching up with people. So I would see him often or catch up. I would really admire what him and, and Keith were doing. And so I had a really intense consulting project in 2017 looking back on it now, actually, as I'm talking to you, I created the space again where I just needed time to just decompress. And uh, it was during that time that I was thinking about, do I want to still do consulting? Do I want to do something else? Even the studying on standby, do you want to revive that? I kind of came back, actually, I think it was actually Thanksgiving. I remember in November, Mike and I spoke and I started the process of really thinking like, hey, what about the search thing is exactly what I've said I wanted to do. I want to buy a company. I think I have the experience to do so. And so I just kind of did with the, the the same path. You, you talk to as many people in the search process as you can, 20, 30 people and I started my process talking to, to various recommendations from Mike. And, and then at this time, Kellogg was definitely more in the search world. And so I, I flew up to Chicago and, and talked to a number of people here at Kellogg, even at Booth. And I started to research the various different paths to search. And at this time, or at that time, the accelerator model has was just emerging. NextGen, I think it had their first cohort. Rotary had had their first cohort and SFA, I think was on one or two, cohort one or two. And so the process of, of learning about search in general, I, I was learning about the accelerator model that was also pretty interesting. I would say you definitely had the experience at this point to uh, to go search for and, and buy and run a company. Some might argue that you had that experience several years prior, <laughs> yeah. but good that you that you came around to it. So you decided to hitch your wagon to to Broadtree, uh, one of the accelerators you mentioned. I know David; he and his team are fantastic. Yes, yes. I'm also about to do an interview um, with your fellow Broadtree searcher tomorrow, Manny Saxena, and I'm looking forward to that. Awesome! Yeah, his story is great. Good. In any case, the, the process worked and you bought Vital Care Industries. What does your company do? We manufacture and distribute medical surgical supplies. A good quick example is if you ever had a knee surgery or hip surgery or shoulder surgery, there is a C-arm in the operating room that's taking continuous images of that area. And so in order to maintain a sterile field, you have to cover the patient, but you also have to cover the equipment in the operating room. So we manufacture and distribute 
the equipment drapes and covers um, and probe covers for the equipment and that's in the room. Got it. In addition to that, we sell solidifier that think about all the liquid that comes out of the body during that procedure and that can't be transported in its liquid state. And so we sell treated and untreated, but a treated solidifier, absolute solidifier allows the medical technician to dispose of that now solidified waste into the main called white back waste or the, the regular trash, which is pretty cost savings for the hospital. In addition to that, we, we sell sterilization packaging and dust and cart covers. Got it. So primarily consumables, which feeds into that recurring revenue feature that search funds so often look for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in our email conversation that the company has minority business enterprise status, MBE status. What does yes. that mean? And what are the implications? And is that something the business had before you acquired it? Mm-hmm. What's the story there? Right. So it's actually a pretty interesting story. And I probably don't doesn't get enough play, but the the original owners, the Johnsons, they had grown this amazing business starting in their basement in the 80s and growing the business. And, you know, African-American couple in the suburbs of Chicago really had this amazing family-owned business. And very rarely, especially in a search fund world, but just in business in general, that you have a transfer from one African-American to another. And uh, that was a privilege and an honor for me to be able to purchase vital care and being able to transfer its ownership from the Johnsons to myself, uh, African-American female. In addition to that, because it was wholly owned by a majority owned, I should say, by the Johnsons, they had a minority business enterprise status or MBE status as a Black-owned business. And actually more, again, wasn't a planned thing, but our lead investor, um, Fifth Century Partners, is a Black-owned private equity firm that was just seeded a $120 million fund. And they backed us. And as a result, with the cumulative minority ownership in the business, we were able to maintain our MBE status, which is pretty amazing. For some benefits on the business? Sorry, I'm unfamiliar. No, no, it does. For us, none of our contracts are tied to our MBE status. So it does not have a direct impact to the business. But I think it allows us to be able to share vital care with with different people that would be interested in minority businesses. And so it allows us to have additional, I would say, reach. However, um, our revenue isn't tied to it. So we have this, we strike this interesting balance, but still very proud to be an MBE. That's pretty amazing that you're able to bring those three pieces together between the seller, you and your source of capital, mm-hmm. your lead investor. Well done. You also acquired during COVID. <laughs> yes. To say the least has been tough for many small businesses. And I assume Vital Care Industries it's been tough for you too. Can you share a story or two of when the impact of COVID has been particularly tangible since launching your search or since buying Vital Care? Yeah, all the above. During search, COVID was unknown. And I actually, I think in February, I flew out to Chicago right before the world ended to, to visit. And so, you know, I was very grateful that we were able to get that in and create that rapport with the Johnsons um, before it was going to be harder to travel. Going through diligence, just making it difficult to, in a lot of cases, you're able to go back and forth and fly and or really be in person. There were some things like QOV, usually there's an on-site management meeting. We weren't able to do that. And our business is pretty complex. We have a 
we're almost bringing like three different companies together. So we have a facility in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and we have a facility in Arizona. And so it made it really difficult for our QV partners to really dig deep and understand because they're having to do this remotely, which was new to them as well. So it probably took would have taken us three, maybe five days, I'd say. It took almost three weeks to get all the data and coordinate with people. And that's because people were kind of doing this off the side of their desk versus us being in their face on an on-site meeting. And even it impacted the business, right? There was no elective surgeries. And so no one was getting their knee replacement or hip replacement during that time. And therefore it impacted the business and the, the revenue of the business. And so we had to figure out how do we adjust for that and and doing it in a, a unknown of thinking about now, we're still talking about COVID, right? COVID is still a thing. And at that point, we thought it was going to be just around for a season or a few months. So having to make those decisions of how we want to value the business as a result of that and, and different things, definitely COVID had a lot of impact. And it's also, you know, for us, is you know, post-close has also driven you know, the collapse or, or the crisis of the supply chain, the global supply chain. Again, mentioning we have a, a facility in Southeast Asia, having to be able to get product from there in a timely fashion has been a really big challenge for my first year as a CEO here. So COVID has impacted my search and my first year as a CEO and Vital Care as a company in so many different ways. And as you're encountering these obstacles in your first year as a CEO, you've been a co-founder of a startup before, but see, being a CEO of a mid-sized company is very different. Mm-hmm. And as, as you encounter them, some of these obstacles are outside of the ordinary CEO job description. Are you put off? Do you regret any decisions? Do you look back and think you should have done something different? I, I suppose those aren't really options right now. Or are you excited by these ridiculous challenges? How do you respond to these obstacles you're facing? I think I have a combination of like pure exhaustion and pure excitement at the same time, right? There's always going to be something, right? Every day is an adventure is my my new tagline because it is. Every day there is something that there's some fire that you have to put out. Learning to manage that constant, you know, ability to manage that that's going to be a constant, right? It's interesting, but understanding that that's how it's going to be, whether it's a huge decision or a huge fire or a small fire, it's a fire nonetheless in approaching it the same way and not trying to give too much fuel to it, so to speak, has kind of keeping me sane almost a year or so whether it's having to deal with difficult employees or or terminations or figuring out how I'm going to meet customer demand because what used to take 40 or 45 days is now taking 60, in some case, 80 days from our product to get here. Making decisions to to air freight things that cost now two and three times that it, it did just a few months ago. So each decision is big in itself and really taking it one by one and resting on the skills that I've developed whenever I graduated <laughs> from undergrad and and kind of using that second nature, that engineering degree, that problem-solving degree to be able to t- take it one decision at a time, to utilize my team to give me insight because they've been here a lot longer than I have and they know the, the industry and the, the company. And so it's a combination of all of those things. You launched your search fund because you had presumably some goals in mind for yourself and your career. Do you feel you're on your way to achieving those goals a year in, or do you, do you still have more things you want to do in your career? Are you pretty satisfied? Where are you? 
Well, yeah, I definitely think that there's more that I want to do. One of the things I do enjoy about the being a CEO is the professional development piece. I enjoy providing the insight and knowledge that I have and, and sharing that with my employees and how I think about things, how I think about problems and providing them with those tools in order to solve their own issues within their departments or areas. And I hope to be on multiple searcher boards in, in the future and be an investor. So I do kind of see later on more kind of as an advisor, investor than operator. So that was going to be my next question is in 20 years, do you see yourself as still operating or moving to the investing side or doing a startup? Yeah, definitely. Well, 20 years is so far. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely, I probably, hopefully will be retired in 20 years. Mm-hmm. I'm older than some of the other searchers, so <laughs> but definitely probably wouldn't be still an operator at the level that I'm operating now as I think about being a chairman of the board or something like that and, and, and operating at a higher level 20 years from now, but it definitely will look a little different and, and probably serving as that advisor, that seasoned advisor across multiple companies of various different sizes. Fantastic. Searchers around the world are listening to your story and many of them are in countries that are brand new to search funds. Mm-hmm. What would you like to share with these aspiring entrepreneurs that you wish you had known when you were weighing the pros and cons of launching a search fund? Yeah, good question. So I definitely, you have to strike the balance of being prepared and having the confidence to do this, mm. having the confidence to, to take the leap, because it is a big leap. Um, in many cases, you're going to make, as a searcher, less money than you're making now at your, your corporate job. And so you're investing in yourself. But I think, especially as a CEO and someone that's responsible for other people's livelihoods, I am a proponent of making sure you do have operations experience before you do this, that you manage people that you have taken the time and not just for a summer, but have done it, have some ownership that you can you have before doing this because it will make your, your life difficult and make your employees' life difficult, makes your relationships difficult outside of work because uh, there is a level of preparation. It is something that you have to really want to do. It is not, just like startups aren't for everyone, ETA is not for everyone either. It's more than just, hey, I just want to be a CEO or want to run a company. There's a lot that has to go into it. And so taking the time to, to prepare yourself for that, I think is important. I don't say you have to do, take seven or eight years like I did post MBA, but I think it is important uh, to have that, that experience and that knowledge because it will give you the confidence that you'll need in order to make those tough decisions. Brilliant, Mia. Thank you so much. You're... Energy is contagious, and I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And, and whether it's as CEO of Vital Care Industries, uh, selling medical equipment coverings, or delivering on-demand hair and beauty services, I, I think <laughs> I'm sure we're going to be seeing more great things from you in the, over the next 20 years before you're chairman of the board. Thank you so much, and best of luck. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Now, after I ended this interview with Mia, I learned another little tidbit. In addition to her approximately 30 employees in the US, Vital Care Industries also employs another 80 people in Vietnam. 
adding additional challenge and excitement to her mandate as CEO. Now, Mia still has a long way to go in her post-acquisition journey as CEO, and the first year has been undoubtedly tough. But with Mia's experience, leadership skills, and infectious energy, I wouldn't bet against her. I, for one, can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, you can find more at thesearchfundblog.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jake Nicholson of SME Ventures, and you're listening to the Search Fund Podcast. Mm-hmm.